This is TSC Now, a podcast from the TSC Alliance. Hello and welcome to TSC Now. I'm your host, Dan Klein. This is a special bonus episode sponsored by Levanova, a global med tech company united to provide hope for patients and their families through innovative medical technologies, delivering life-changing improvements for both the head and heart. Today, we're diving deep on drug-resistant or refractory epilepsy. More than 50% of individuals with TSC who have epilepsy will not respond to standard anti-seizure medications or ASMs and have intractable epilepsy. My guest is Dr. Karen Keough, a child neurologist at Child Neurology Consultants of Austin, and she shares some information about some alternative treatment options for people living with drug-resistant epilepsy. Here's our conversation. So I'm now joined by Dr. Karen Keough. Dr. Keough is a child neurologist. She's on the professional advisory board of the TSC Alliance, and she is the director of the TSC Clinic at the Child Neurology Consultants of Austin. And she's also a clinical associate professor of pediatrics for Texas A&M Medical School. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Very happy to be here. Thank you. Today, we're talking about a subject that isn't too uncommon in TSC and in the neurology space in general, drug-resistant epilepsy or DRE. And just as a baseline, can you give me a definition of what DRE is? So DRE occurs in patients who have epilepsy who are taking medication at appropriate doses. They're the correct medicines for their disease, but they continue to have seizures despite trying two different medications. And after that, occurs, they've declared themselves to be in the refractory category. So whether those seizures are happening a lot or even infrequently, maybe just a couple of times a year, that's still considered drug-resistant epilepsy. And attaining full control going an entire year with no seizures at all is fairly unlikely in that group of patients, even though they've only failed two medications. And how many people are affected by drug-resistant epilepsy? It's remarkably common, despite the fact that we have a lot of new seizure medications that have been introduced in the last several decades. 3.4 million Americans live with epilepsy as an ongoing disease for which they receive treatment. And the drug-resistant population is about 35%. So I think of that as one-third of patients with epilepsy. Wow, that's staggering. And and how does having drug-resistant epilepsy really affect their quality of life? It has lots of different impacts on their quality of life. So ongoing seizures are dangerous in and of themselves. The main reason we put people on treatment for epilepsy is to prevent injury from individual seizures. But there's much more to epilepsy than just physical injury. It's a constant worry of having a seizure occur at any moment, despite the fact that you're being responsible and taking your medicines and taking care of yourself well. With each individual seizure, it may take time to recover. It may interfere with activities that you're trying to do day to day, whether that's going to school or trying to keep a job. It interferes with other relationships. We know that people with ongoing epilepsy, especially in a refractory case, have a very low rate of being able to maintain employment. They also have a lower rate of becoming married and maintaining a married state, having children. All of those things are more challenging for people who have resistant epilepsy. 
They also are subject to emergencies without any warning at all. They have repeated visits to the emergency room and often repeated hospitalizations, and that becomes very expensive. One of the biggest challenges with ongoing epilepsy is that you can't drive a car if your seizures interfere with your ability to stay awake and aware as you are driving. And being unable to drive in our society is a huge impediment. It seems like having drug-resistant epilepsy is significantly impactful in people's lives. And as you mentioned earlier, once you fail that second medication, the likelihood of a third medication working is very low. So if adding medications is not likely to help this type of epilepsy, what other treatment options are available? So if I have a patient who has failed two medications and I believe them to be compliant with medicine, I know they're taking the right thing, that's when I start to think about non-medication treatments. Is there something we can do beyond medicines that could help them and get their seizures under better control? Mostly we're looking at surgical options, although dietary therapy is a possibility. Dietary therapy is tough because you have to be 100% compliant with it every day at every meal. And some patients will choose to do that because it has some advantages with fewer side effects compared to medications. But that's probably a not very realistic option for treatment for most patients. So we're looking at the possibility of surgery. One of the more exciting opportunities is when we might have a way to actually cure epilepsy with brain surgery. But it takes a very special circumstance for patients with epilepsy to be candidates for brain surgery. All of the seizures have to be coming from a single place. And that area of the brain has to be readily sacrificed. It has to not have other important jobs. And if we remove it, it can't cause some kind of a deficit that would be too high a price to pay. We do an evaluation to consider the possibility of brain surgery in any patient who continues to have seizures despite medication. Not everyone is a candidate. It just depends on where their seizures are coming from and what would be the consequence of pursuing brain surgery. In that case, Neuromodulation or neurostimulation is also an option for treatment of refractory epilepsy. Now, this is a treatment that is used in combination with medication. It is not a replacement for medicine, but it complements medication. And it tends to have fewer side effects, so that makes it an attractive addition to medication. So you talked a little bit about the factors that go into determining whether someone is a candidate for surgery, but what other factors determine what additional treatments you would recommend and in what order to address DRE? So it has a lot to do with the epilepsy itself. What kinds of seizures are the patients having? How frequently do they happen? How much does it interfere with their day-to-day life? And would they potentially be a candidate for brain surgery? And if they're not, then we're going to think about neuromodulation as an option. Meanwhile, we're always going to continue to be adjusting medication because even though we know that statistically speaking, it's hard to completely stop seizures with different medication trials, there's always the possibility that you might find a medication that will work better. So the goal of treatment in refractory epilepsy is different. The goal of treatment in that situation is not necessarily getting to zero seizures. It's minimizing the impact of those seizures, fewer seizures, less intense, having more control over that ongoing epilepsy. So I know you touched on it a little bit, but just to reiterate, what are the real benefits of these alternative treatments that you kind of laid out earlier? So what we see with neuromodulation and neurostimulation is that the seizures typically become less frequent and shorter. They are less intense, so sometimes the patients will retain more awareness. They have a faster recovery from their individual seizures. 
and they tend to have fewer side effects from medication. Patients that respond really well to neurostimulation are able to decrease the dose of their medicines over time, and that leads to fewer side effects as well. There are also some studies that show that sudden death from epileptic seizures are less frequent in patients who have neurostimulators and certainly much lower in patients who've had successful brain surgery. And are there any drawbacks or side effects families should know about when making decisions about next steps for treating DRE? Implanting a neurostimulator has some upfront risk because it's a surgical procedure. And a lot of people are very hesitant about moving forward with surgery. There's a risk to anesthesia, but the procedures themselves are not very risky. There is a risk of infection and infection is an infrequent complication and it's usually readily treated, but usually that requires removal of the device itself. So it's a real setback when that happens. Stimulation from vagus nerve stimulator will cause some immediate physical side effects when the stimulator is in active mode. The most noticeable thing is that it can cause a change in how the voice sounds. So if the patient is vocalizing, speaking, or crying, you can hear a little vibration of the vocal cords when the stimulator is on. When the simulator is new, this seems a little more obvious. It can cause a little discomfort in the throat, cause the patient to clear their throat frequently. But as they get used to having a stimulator in place, we can gradually increase the level of stimulation that they're experiencing and they can get used to it. And the side effects tend to become more tolerable over time. What advice do you give to parents or caregivers who may feel discouraged about their child's drug-resistant epilepsy? How do you talk to parents about it and whether or not their seizure control is realistic? So these are hard conversations and it's not an isolated conversation. It's an ongoing conversation with families. When epilepsy is first diagnosed, I think most people do expect that the treatment will work and that seizures will stop. And that does work for the majority of patients. Two thirds of people will have no seizures on treatment, but one third get into that refractory category. So I think it's mostly about setting realistic expectations with the families and under Understanding that zero seizures is not the only goal that can be associated with improvement in quality of life. If we are able to decrease the frequency and intensity of seizures, if we can prevent falls, prevent trips to the emergency room and hospitalizations, these are important goals that are realistic, even though getting to zero is not very likely to occur. And so I really emphasize being optimistic about improvement and having goals that we can achieve. So finally, where can parents get more information about drug-resistant epilepsy and the different options available to them in looking at next steps? So I think the most important source for information about this is your treating neurologist who should be well-informed. Sometimes going to an epilepsy specialist, if you're seeing a general neurologist, can really change the game and bring out some new opportunities for treatment that might not have been considered previously. It also can be helpful to talk to other families who have looked at these other options. Talk to families who've been through an evaluation for brain surgery or maybe had brain surgery or had a stimulator put in place. I often connect families that I'm working with when they're just learning about it with families who've been through the process to be able to answer questions that come differently from parents and patients themselves compared to what I might tell them. There are also good online resources, the Epilepsy Foundation of America or the International League Against Epilepsy both have really informative websites. And there are also institution websites and like our practice website, for example, has good information to read and learn about these different options. Dr. Keo, thank you so much for sharing your expertise, for sharing more information about drug-resistant epilepsy, and for providing parents with more resources when they're facing 
drug-resistant epilepsy on where to find those next steps. You're very welcome. Thanks so much for the invitation. My thanks again to Dr. Keel for sharing her expertise on drug-resistant epilepsy. I'll share some links in the show notes to the resources she mentioned. Thank you also to Levanova again for sponsoring this episode. And finally, thank you to you for listening and subscribing to TSC Now. You can check out older episodes at tscalliance.org slash tscnow or by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like the show, please leave a review and rating. Your ratings are so crucial in helping other people find this podcast. That will do it for this episode. See you next time. Thank you for listening to TSC Now. Our theme song is Take Charge by Young Presidents. Listen to all our episodes and subscribe to the podcast now at tscalliance.org slash tscnow. See you next time.